We've been working our way through the letter of 2 Corinthians this fall. We'll finish up the Sunday before Christmas Sunday, but today we reach a turning point in this letter, uh, and it all has to do with its focus. Now, before we jump into chapter 10, where we are today, let's just review the Apostle Paul's interaction with these believers in Corinth, because it's really important to see now where this fits in. On his second, second missionary journey, Paul journeys to the city of Corinth. It's recorded in Acts chapter 18. And there he proclaims the good news of Jesus, and he begins a church there of these new believers. He ends up spending 18 months with them, solidifying their spiritual growth while he continues to evangelize and to disciple after his departure, he writes them a letter addressing several questions that they'd raised of him. That letter we don't possess today. And then he hears of more issues in the church, divisions, immorality, uh, lawsuits against one another. And so he sits down and he writes what we call the letter of 1 Corinthians to them. It's all to address those issues. Problems continue. So he's in Ephesus at the time. He makes a quick trip across the Aegean Sea to the city of Corinth to try to straighten things out. But instead, he's opposed vociferously uh, and rejected. His apostolic authority is, is rejected. And uh, so he goes back to Ephesus, and then he writes what he calls his harsh letter. It was a severe letter. I wish we had copies today, but we do not. They've been lost to history. And so here he does, he, he, he sends now another letter, the letter we call 2 Corinthians. And he sends it with Titus, who's to go back and see that the disciplinary issues are dealt with, and then to encourage the Corinthians to follow through on the commitment they had made to take up a collection for the church in Jerusalem. During Titus's visit, and we kind of read between the lines here in, in 2 Corinthians. But during his visit, most of the dissenters repent. Paul describes it as a godly grief that leads to repentance. And most of them turn back and they affirm their love to Paul and acceptance of his, uh, of his, of his apostolic authority. Titus then takes that report and he reconnects with the Apostle Paul, who's now making his way through Macedonia, maybe cities like Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, who's coming now down and they hook up together and Titus brings this good report that so many now of those that had been dissenting and opposing Paul have repented of that and now they are reaffirming their love for Paul, their affection for him. And that's why Paul pens 2 Corinthians to return that back to them. So in chapters 1 to 9, Paul has been directing generally toward the majority of those in the church and specifically to those who have repented and returned under Paul's authority. But now when we come to chapter 10, there's a significant change and Paul now addresses his comments to the few that remain as dissenters, a minority still within the church that still oppose Paul. So the first part of the book is all about his defense of his life, of his ministry, of his apostleship. 
Then he talks about the relief that he has in the fact that they've repented, most of them, and come back into fellowship with him. And then he turns his attention to those who still remain opposed to him. So he's going to say some pretty harsh things. For example, let's, if you have your Bible, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. You want to grab a Bible in front of you, page 1232. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to be in 10, but I want you to see this comment in chapter 11. And it'll give you a little bit of the feel for what Paul's doing in addressing this dissenting minority. In 2 Corinthians 11, at verse 12, he says, And what I'm doing I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their end will correspond to their deeds. Pretty strong stuff. Uh, these obviously, you know, we don't know what their teaching is, but, but these people obviously included some of those representing a Jewish Christian movement that was designed to keep the, the Mosaic law as indispensable and superior to the gospel. It would have included those who portrayed themselves as true apostles with an emphasis on, uh, on the flashy, on, on all these letters of commendation that they had brought with them from other churches. Uh, it's a health-wealth gospel that we see Paul addressing. Uh, it, it, these are people who have an exalted spiritual view of themselves. These troublemakers denied Paul's authority his integrity, and they questioned the very validity of the gospel message that Paul preached. And so here he is at the end of this letter now defending the gospel of grace and his own ministry. In chapter 10, we're going to look at this morning, Paul defends himself and his ministry against three charges. The first is a charge of cowardice. The second is a charge against weakness and contemptible speech. And thirdly is a charge of ambition. So let's go to chapter 10. Follow along as I read starting at verse 1, 2 Corinthians 10, starting at verse 1. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I went away. I beg of you that when, I'm with, that when I'm present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect this of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Paul was with them in humility, in weakness, in suffering. And these false apostles and the dissenters supposed and interpreted that as being deficient. That the very fact that Paul was suffering and was weak with them, they thought disqualified him from his apostleship. 
And the fact that he was experiencing suffer, suffering clearly showed that he couldn't be a real apostle. He's bold in his letters, they said, but he's milk toast when he's with us. Just another indication that Paul was really a coward. And because of this perceived weakness, they accused him of walking according to the flesh. Paul acknowledged in his earlier letter that he had not come to them in dominating authority. Turn over to the letter of 1 Corinthians, just back one book, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This is the way that he explained his presence among them when he was there. Second, or 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. It's interesting that in contrast to the false apostles who, who boasted in their strength, in their flashiness, in their charisma, Paul says, I come to you in meekness. Now, if they really thought about it, what he's doing is he's identifying himself with his master, with Jesus, who said that he was what? Meek and lowly, as opposed to those who were building their own kingdom within the church at Corinth. He says, I come as our Lord came, meekness and humility. As Scott Hafman notes, far from being an act of cowardice, Paul's timidity in the past was an act of mercy. I don't think they saw it. You know, we always have to watch out for those spiritual leaders who exalt themselves over others, who exercise spiritual authority beyond what is theirs to exercise. In fact, Jesus warned his disciples about this. He said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's always the danger of spiritual leaders abusing their authority. Warren Wearsby writes, how a Christian uses authority is an evidence of his spiritual maturity and character. A mature person does not use authority to demand respect, but to command respect. It's a sad thing to see when a spiritual leader feels that they have to demand respect because they cannot command respect. Long ago, Nancy and I were part of a church that brought in a new pastor. We watched as he lorded it over others in the church, even staff and other leaders in the church. In fact, he put into print his philosophy of ministry, which was the deacons are the errand boys of the pastor. Eventually, this pastor about ran the church into the ground until he was forced to resign. But we always have to be aware 
that there's always a danger of anybody in authority, spiritual authority included, of abusing the authority that God gives them. Paul, who rightfully had the apostolic authority to demand he get his way, appeals through meekness and humility and by his suffering. And he goes on, as we read there in chapter 10, to describe how he did this. And he tells them that that he employed spiritual weapons in this spiritual conflict with those who opposed him. He's already alluded to it earlier. Just turn back in 2 Corinthians to chapter 4. Remember these words, 2 Corinthians 4, starting at verse 2. Paul wrote, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In this case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so Paul contrasts his ministry approach with these false apostles in Corinth who appealed to the flashy, to the flamboyant, to the ecstatic, to the colorful rhetoric. The weapons that he employs, he says, will destroy everything that's lifted up against the knowledge of God. This isn't just about winning arguments or winning debates. D.A. Carson writes, he means something far more. His weapons destroy the way people think, demolish their sinful thought patterns, the mental structures by which they live their lives in rebellion against God. So Paul says that he takes every thought captive to obey Christ. Now, while it's true that we must assert control over our thought life through the power of the Holy Spirit, that's not really what Paul is talking about there when he says he takes every thought captive. It's not a personal, private struggle that he's describing here. It is instead all about the public dispute over the gospel and the commendation of God towards those who rightfully proclaim it. Haifman writes, to take captive every thought to Christ is to evaluate every teaching concerning who Jesus is and what it means to follow him in order to ensure that whatever is said and thought conforms to the character and purposes of Christ himself. Boy, folks, are we in need of that today. We're in a battle for truth. We're in a battle for righteousness. In Isaiah chapter 5, we have this warning. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Is that not an apt description today in the arena for truth? You know, if we fail to realize there's a spiritual battle going on out there, you know, we're sorely mistaken or naive or just plain wrong. Every generation of believers is challenged to stand for truth as revealed in the scriptures. 
or they will be seduced by a culture that denies absolute truth as declared by God in Scripture. The words at the end of the Old Testament book of Judges becomes then the way that a culture operates, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Look at the appeal that comes from Jude in his New Testament letter. He says, Beloved, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. With him using the definite article there, the, the faith, he says, Jude is referring to the content of faith, not the exercise of faith. It's the body of truth that comprises the body of our faith. So we have to stand for the truth. We have to proclaim the truth wherever possible. Paul's argument to them, to these dissenters, is the truth will win out over their false claims. Now, here's the second charge that Paul has to defend himself against. It's the charge of weakness and contemptible speech. Let's pick up in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 10. Paul says, look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he's in Christ, that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you in my letters. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Paul seems here to have to defend the fact that he's even a Christian to these dissenters. Doesn't that seem a bit preposterous? Uh, you know, and yet the deception and the deceit of the false apostles in Corinth had so distort, distorted the view of Paul that, that, that even his own salvation was being questioned. Paul declares that the authority that he did exercise was from God and the purpose was the building up of these believers in Christ. And therefore, he's not ashamed of anything that he had done in their presence. And here's his warning to those who continue to resist Paul and reject his authority. Listen, if need be, my presence will be made as bold as my letters. He says, you want me to be tough? I'll be tough if that's what you want. And so he has to defend himself against being weak. And then the last thing is the charge of ambition. Look at verse 12. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we're not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you, for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. 
Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Paul takes on the fact that these false teachers had an overinflated view of themselves. He says that the standard of measurement that you are using is a self-standard. It's one that you've made up. It's one of your neighbor there, your other fellow dissenter, and you look at that and then you commend yourself. You know, when one standard is your own, you can always come out up on top, can't you? And that's the problem with these folks. This cobble of false apostles had come up with their own criteria to define a true apostle. And they compared themselves to that standard, and then, to be honest, they looked really good. And Paul says, you're using the wrong standard. They took the same standard defined by themselves, and then they applied it to Paul, and guess what? They found Paul to be deficient. And thus, it was easy to dismiss his authority and even his faith. Paul says, you can't do that. But that's the problem of the Pharisees, isn't it? That we see in the Gospels. You know, they set their own standards. They compared themselves with the standards. And then they came out great. In verse 13 here, Paul defines the parameters of the judgment of his ministry. He said, it is to be within the sphere of ministry, the field of ministry that God had given him. So think about the application for us today. How will God judge our work? How is he going to judge our lives in that sense? From what Paul says, it'll be according to the faithfulness that we show in the area of ministry that God assigns to us. And what's that field of ministry? Well, I think it includes things like our giftedness, our talents, opportunities that God gives us. You know, are we faithful in the opportunities that God brings our way to be his servants and in that to serve others? This is the measuring stick for our lives and for our ministries. This will be the basis upon which our works will be judged before the judgment seat of Christ that Paul talks about in chapter 5 here of his letter. And in this, then, we can boast in the Lord. See, here's here's the contrast between what Paul describes as boasting in one's self-proclaimed accomplishments and boasting what's done in the Lord. It's a boasting of what God has done by his grace in us and through us. This is what we boast about. This is the boasting that the prophet Jeremiah talked about. Look at this from Jeremiah 9. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Do we put our confidence in our wisdom, in our might, in our riches, Is this the basis for our boasting? If so, we are sadly wrong. Or is it in the commendation of others that occupies our thoughts? It's so easy to be more concerned about the commendation of others than it is about the commendation of God. This was Paul's perspective when he wrote to the Galatians. And he said, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. 
And so here's the question for you today. It's the title of the message, Whose Commendation Really Matters? Whose commendation really matters? The truth is, it will be God who will approve and commend or will withhold such commendation. So what can you walk away with this morning? I have a series of questions. Let me pose them to you. So maybe, maybe you'll see one or two that you can latch on to this week and, and, and think about. Um, are you trying to fight spiritual battles with fleshly weapons? See, first we have to acknowledge that it's a spiritual battle. And then we have to understand that we need spiritual weapons. Are you about the work of building up God's work or tearing it down? That's really a challenge to sinful people that are part of a body of Christ. The danger is always that it's much easier to tear down than it is to build up, isn't it? But are we about building up the work of God? Here's another one. Are you judging your life by your standards or by God's? We really set the bar low on our standards, don't we? But all of a sudden, when we understand God and his standards, then we see how far we fall short. Then we see the need for the grace of God. And then we have the gratitude in our hearts and minds because of what God, by his grace, is doing in us. How about this one? Are you discovering God's field of ministry for you? Paul says that God created good works for you as an individual, as one of his kids, for you to walk in. What are those? We want to find those. What area of ministry can I serve him and serve others in? And then lastly, are you seeking God's commendation or that of others? It really goes down to motive, doesn't it? Whose commendation really matters? Would you pray with me? God, help us to search our own hearts and minds, our lives as we review it. Uh, help us to really sort out whose commendation we're really more interested in. That we might have that attitude that we want to serve in a way that when we meet you face to face, you will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. So, Lord, challenge us with your word. Challenge us with our motives. Challenge us with the way we live our lives before others, serving them, serving you. Uh, and Lord, may we continue to be uh, grateful for your grace at work in us. Might we be instruments of grace in the lives of others. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.